Welcome to the Historias Podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. Although it declared an end to its armed activities in 2011, ETA remains one of the most controversial phenomena in the historical memory of Spain's recent past. Usually portrayed as either terrorists or freedom fighters, often missing from these debates is discussion of the lives of ETA members themselves. Here to discuss some of these life stories with me is Dr. Nicolás Buckley, who teaches at the Universidad Metropolitana de Ecuador and the Universidad Europea de Madrid. He analyzes the interviews he conducted with seven ETA activists in his recent book, Out of Prison, ETA Life Stories Become History, from the University of Nevada, Reno's Center for Bass Studies. So, Nicolás, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Foster. First of all, Could you tell us a bit about um, how you went about interviewing these ETA activists? What were you trying to accomplish in these interviews and what kind of questions were you trying to answer? Well, and probably the main reason that I, I, I make these interviews is because the, the life stories of, of ETA activists were kind of a, of a forbidden transcript, you know? Uh, uh, most of the bibliography written about the Basque conflict uh, were kind of this had this kind of institutional approach, you know? And so uh, in this historiography or on this bibliography, the emotions of ETA activists were absent, you know? The funny thing is that I did not try to answer any specific question. Um, maybe I tried to answer uh, some questions with many ages. Maybe, uh, maybe I, I tried to answer one general question that was like, How can we understand the Basque conflict from the life stories of ETA activists? So what was your methodology in terms of how you went about selecting who you were going to interview? And, and how did you go about connect, uh, conducting the interviews? And specifically, just to add one more thing, could you tell us a little more? You mentioned that idea of, of, of their emotions. So you could mm -hmm. say, could you say a little more about, you know, what you what you're trying to explore with that? Yeah, I mean... Um, The, the funny thing is that <laughs> I, should, I should say again that uh, the process of, of, of choosing the, 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 the narrators were kind of random because, I mean, a key point of the ethnographic work uh, was to understand the relations of power from the cultural grassroots. I mean, uh, we could say in other words that I was looking for young ETA activists who could bring me a kind of portrait of the last generations of of Basque committed with the, with the army struggle, but I was also looking for, for old activists who could report their, their life experience to me in the years of the, of the transition. Um, and I conducted the, the interviews in the format of life story. Um, in this format, the, the narrator tells the, his or her life story from the beginning, I mean, from his or her birth, until the moment of the interview. And probably the key point of oral history methodology is not to extract a specific information about a particular context, but rather oral history is based on how the narrator uh, makes sense of his or her, her own life story, sorry. So what I wanted to portray is this kind of disenchantment process uh, that ECTA activists live with Spanish politics, no? The oral life story approach is based on the emotions, no? The, this, this, this war that is very fascinating nowadays in history, no? And, on, and mainly on the emotions of the narrator. We could say that some Orthodox historians, they see a problem on this. I mean, they see a problem with the, uh, I mean, if you talk about emotions, maybe sometimes we, you will try to, to avoid a, 
uh, rational analysis, you know. But of course, rational analysis cannot disappear on the academia. I mean, if we talk about, uh, if we are uh, researchers, we are scholars, we always need to take a, a rational analysis, no? But let's say that in armed conflicts, we have a lack of understanding, basically, of how human beings, uh, we could say perpetrators or also victims, lived in the most emotional way, the armed conflict. So uh, let's say, again, I mean, this is kind of uh, controversial, what I can say, no? but, but this is one of the points of academia, that all our history had been neglected by, by uh, Orthodox historians until very recently, be, because in, it entered in the terrain of, of subjectivities, you know? So another important element is that during the interview, the narrator, of course, has doubts because the narrator some kind distrust the historian. Uh, but also, uh, you, we can, you can say, you, we can see that during the interview, the, the historian has also doubts in terms of ideological or personal or whatever, you know? So we can, for instance, if you are sitting in front of, of a person that probably has killed another person, maybe you can have some moral uh, questions that you, you can ask yourself, you know? So what is the, the, in what way I should deal with this, with this person I have uh, in front of me, you know? I mean, what is, or how, how, how should I, write about this, 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 this guy that maybe uh, has committed several crimes, you know? So mm -hmm. that is my, the, the main point is that oral history shows a, a process of intersubjectivity uh, and it shows how we can create knowledge in a bidirectional way. I mean, not only at the traditional expert looking to the, to the object of a study, probably the, the, the main point of oral history is that we make curiosity the main object of a study we are we oral historians we don't try to uh, you know we are we don't try to explain the ex our expertise to, to to the broad audience but also we we saw we display uh, our emotional process with the with the object with the object of a study let's say in, in in these terms now i also just have to ask you um because you mentioned you were looking for eta activists who were both younger and older, you know, how did you find uh, these people to interview and, and how did you get them to agree to be interviewed? You know, was, was there anything that they weren't willing to discuss um, as, you, as you went into these sessions? Yeah, I'm not sure if there were, I'm not sure about the reasons why they agree, you know, to be, to be interviewed. I think that, uh, I mean, I remember one specific sentence of an ETA activist and he told me, I know if we not we do not tell our story, others will. You know, so I I think this was this kind of uh, they have this kind of fears. You know that that uh, uh, they don't want again any expert to to talk about ETA. They want their own voice in the on the record. You know, and uh, and I think this is kind of very powerful. No, uh, I know. I think also it exists a kind of contradiction. You know, uh, if we think about the intense and and fascinating stories that these ETA activists, you know, carry in their backs in terms of prison sentences, uh, armed struggle, tortures, you know, and also the lack of academic attention that they have received, you know? I mean, scholars, and I know this in, in first hand because I have some colleagues that have talked me about, you know, they have been afraid of all these years to, to conduct an interview with ETA activists, you know, they, of course, they, they were afraid, maybe in a physical way, you know, this, this kind of what would happen if I make a, an interview with a terrorist, well, but mm -hmm. what these terrorists will 
will do to me, will, will, will inflict me some damage maybe, you know? but at the same time, of course, they were afraid of uh, their future academic career. I mean, uh, maybe, so, you know, if you put in your, the skin of these scholars, you know, uh, so maybe if I try to have a distant and objective analysis of these uh, perpetrators of the activists, and I, don't, I do not tell exclusively, I do not, photo, I do not focus my analysis exclusively in the damage, you know, in the painful things that ETA has done, and I try to, have a distant and an objective analysis, maybe I will not have a job <laughs> until yeah. I finish the, the research. Maybe other some Spanish universities will refuse to contact me because maybe I, I write some stuff about ETA that uh, will not like in some de specific departments, you know? So mm -hmm. this is an, an issue uh, when we talk about, about terrorism. And of course, I think that probably uh, is not the same anymore because ETA doesn't exist. Uh, ETA is no longer a threat to anyone in, in Spain. So probably uh, this kind of, uh, of collective fear, you know, or academic fear to talk about some things that could, you know, bother some people uh, is not the same like, like 10 years ago or five years ago when I conducted the research. But anyway, who knows? Well, and yeah, sorry. And the next, uh, next thing about this question is that probably the most uncomfortable topic to discuss with, with ETA activists was their role as perpetrators, you know? Probably because they want to defend morally their cause, you know? So ETA activists, mm -hmm. they, uh, as we will talk later, you know, uh, we, uh, they, they tried to, to see to put themselves as victims, you know? Uh, and of course, and this is something very important, they are victims because most of them, they receive, uh, they were tortured in the, in the moment of the, of the tension. So basically they feel more comfortable to, to talk, you know, as a victim role, as a, that, as a, that as a perpetrator, of course. So uh, we'll take a short break and then we'll take a look at, at what some of their stories were and, and what you're able to learn from them. So now let's turn to the history of the ETA movement itself. Could you start by summarizing for us um, when and how did ETA actually emerge as a political movement? ETA emerged as a political movement in the, in the Spanish 1960s, but completely in 1959. I mean, we need to understand uh, this period as, you know, uh, how the Franco's regime uh, established the, the well, it, it, it was called the Estabilization Plan that was carried uh, with uh, or by the technocrats of, technocrats of Opus Dei. I, you know, and these technocrats, uh, they help basically to industrialize uh, the Spanish economy. Um, and during this period, many workers from, you know, from all, from the south of Spain, from the east of Spain, Migrated to the to the industrial areas of Catalonia and the Basque Country. Probably the most interesting part of this story is how some conservative sectors of the Basque nationalist movement they felt threat by by some Spanish workers. They were kind of outsiders of the Basque cultures, you know. So they they, they felt like like these Spanish workers were trying to to destroy the Basque culture at some point because they they didn't know how to speak the Basque language, Euskera. And, and, and it's very important to, to understand, you know, to, 
to see the, the beginning of ETA in this context, but also the 1960s in Spain, some parts of the Basque nationalist movement, probably parts of the, from the left, uh, were disappointed with the PNV, Partido Nacionalista Vasco, uh, and, the, and its strategy of defeating the dictatorship. You know, we need to understand that in 1945, you know, after the Nazi Germany was defeated by the US and the European allies, the US did not try to stop the Franco dictatorship from strategic reasons about, and the Cold War. Uh, the government of Eisenhower saw a strong ally uh, in the in the Franco's government, no. So between 1959 and 1975, uh, we we need to recall that 75 was the year when Franco died, the, the, the dictator. Mm-hmm. And uh, so ETA channeled this discontent, basically, of the vast popular crisis, classes, uh, integrating the non-native working class. You know, so it was kind of an unprecedented, an unprecedented narrative where all Basques, no matter the blood, no matter the, you know, the religious uh, background, were kind of the same people. And it was, uh, right now, in the 20th, 21st century, if uh, anyone could say, of course, it doesn't matter your blood or your religion to be part of a homeland, to be part of a particular country. But in the, in the 1960s, uh, we need to understand the a strong traditional grassroots and religion that have the, the PNU, particularly Vasco, and it was very connected with the, with the origins of blood, with the purity of blood, and with the religion, of course, with the Catholic religion. No? So ETA emerged in the 60s as a political and social movement, and ETA saw how display this kind of movement, kind of teaching the Basque or, or, or showing the Basque people how the uh, Francoist and Spanish identity was a kind of uh, colonial power uh, within the Basque country, you know, and so, and this is very interesting how, of course, uh, in the 21st century today, we can say that the Spanish state is not a colonial power. You can say from the Basque nationalist movement that maybe, maybe uh, 40% of the Basque or maybe 50% of the Basque would agree with the right, right of self-determination, but right now, today, the United Nations uh, wouldn't say that the uh, state, the Spanish state, is a colonial power, and you know, in Catalonia or the Basque country. But actually, with the in the 1960s, a uh, significant part of the Basque population, with ETA as the vanguard, have this kind of feeling, you know, that the, the Francoist uh, dictatorship was a colonial power within the country, you know, within within the region. You use the story of the oldest activist you interviewed, Fernando Echegari, to tell the story of. ETA's uh, emergence in its early years. So what was his story and how does it help us to understand this period? In the book, the, the life story of, of ETA activist Fernando Chegaray was used as a kind of counter-narrative of the, of the Spanish transition. You know, we need to, to remember that this political this transition, this political period, uh, was from 1975 to 1982 and marked the beginning of the of the end of the transition, basically. No, so from this official narrative, we need to understand the Spanish transition as uh, you know the first time that the Spaniards would uh, stop, you know, or would heal the, the the bones of the civil war, you know, that which is maybe is part part true, but the other part that is not part of the official narrative is that the Spaniards left represented mainly by the, by, by the Communist Party, which was the main force uh, of during the transition, gave up at some point no? uh, and, and accepted or couldn't resist anymore the, 
the pressure uh, from the Frankish establishment, you know, and the and the the pressure from the uh, Hispanic big industry and the Hispanic Spanish financial sectors, basically, and basically this economic and powerful uh, establishment imposed some important conditions from the Spanish left. We need to understand that the Spanish left, all the Spanish left without exceptions in the 1970s, in, in the 1971, 1972, was Republican. Any part of the Spanish left, neither, of course, the Spanish Communist Party, neither the PSOE, Partido Socialista or Español, could imagine that a few years later would accept uh, the monarchy. You know, mm-hmm. um, So this was kind of the of the complexity to understand the, the, the Spanish transition. We need to, we have also uh, an, a specific year, 1977, when the Moncloa Pacts uh, were established. You know, the Moncloa Pacts were a kind of exchange and the uh, aperturistas, like they call, you know, the, the, this kind of wing of the Spanish transition uh, who were in favor of the free market. They uh, say to the Spanish left, they say, look, uh, you will accept the monarchy, you will uh, uh, accept to not do any kind of purge, any kind of purgas, we say in Spanish, you know, in the judicial system. And at the same time, we will uh, we will let Spanish anti-fascist and left-wing to receive the political amnesty. So th- this was the, 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 the key point to understand the, to understand the Moncloa Pacts in, in 1977. We need to understand also that probably the only political force against this pact was the Basque radical community. When we talk about the Basque radical community, we talk about uh, unions and political parties closed, ideological, ideologically close to ETA. So for this Basque radical community, there was something very important. The most important thing uh, was to, to acknowledge the right of self-determination for the Basques. So, Basically, uh, yeah, a very important element is that all the Spanish political forces, or, or the main Spanish political forces like the Communist Party and PSOE, uh, Partido Socialista Obrero Español, uh, accepted this right of self-determination uh, basically before Franco died. They say, okay, of course, when we will arrive to power, we will uh, uh, listen to the Basque and the Catalans, and we will uh, accept uh, this right of, of self-determination. And after the Moncloa, the Moncloa Pacts, if we see the outcome of the political transition, all the Basque radical community, they felt a kind of disenchantment, disenchantment, you know, because they thought, okay, we are going to fight with our comrades in the Spanish Communist Party, with our comrades from the rest of Spain. And of course, when, when we will the, the transition finish, we will be able to decide if we want to continue uh, within the Spanish state, we want to have an independent country. So, uh, yeah. So, of course, we know that that didn't happen because the pressure probably from the bunker, we say the pressure from the military, you know, uh, and from the economic and financial sectors. So basically, the, the life story in this kind of context that I, I have explained, Fernando Chegaray traveled in the opposite way of the official narrative of the transition. So uh, in this narrative, those who had basically a radical ideology would say communist or fascist at the beginning of the 1970s ended up voting for moderate political parties at the beginning of the 80s. That's was the, the official narrative. Those who talk about uh, doesn't matter communist or those about the Soviet Union or those who talk about fascist ideologies would leave these ideologies that would be in a more moderate, moderate way would in a would have a more moderate behavior. You know, at the end of the of the transition. However. 
Echegaray was uh, at the beginning of the 70s in a moderate union, like was uh, UGT, Union General de Trabajadores. And at the beginning of the 80s, when everyone would say, you just have to have a work, you have to create a family, uh, gaining money, uh, be part of the kind of consumer society, uh, look to Europe, you know. Echegaray in this period in the, at, the beginning of the, of the, at the beginning of the 80s was already part of ETA. So uh, this kind of, with this political trip of, uh, of Echegaray depicts this kind of disenchantment process of the vast political community, you know. Uh, yeah. And this community, of course, ended up representing the main antagonist force of the people in charge of the transition. Right, right. Yeah, that's very interesting because that, that's something that always struck me that I think many of us can kind of understand the emergence of ETA in the context of uh, the Franco regime. But once it's once you get into the transition, then you, in some ways, that's sort of the heyday of, of ETA that you have the most attacks in that period. Um, and, that, and that's always sort of surprised me. But I think when we look back now and, and we see, you know, there's been a lot of trans criticism of the transition recently in to the extent to which much of the Franco regime actually, you know, transformed in, into the democratic Spain rather, rather than it being sort of a revolution. Then I think we can start to see some of the kind of the mentality in that Basque radical community through which uh, you know ETA was operating in, in that in that period, as you mentioned. Yeah, it's interesting how like uh, sometimes historians. I mean, <laughs> this is I, I I laugh about it because uh, many people say that historians are probably the most conservative scholars, more than, for instance, anthropologists or more than. I don't know, political scientist, you know, and I think is because uh, I mean we tried, uh, you know, and is and I think this is a part of, of the podcast. No, we, with historians, we try to have a distant and objective analysis because you know uh, we can separate ourselves in terms of a, in a timeline. We can separate ourselves of, of the object of a study, you know, and that gives us historians the the this attribute, this kind of good thing about you know trying to be objective, no? But I think that in the last years, in the last decades, we are, uh, and in the present period, we are observing how liberal democracy is very fragile, you know? Uh, we have this kind of, of, of extreme right movements in, in the US, we have this kind of extreme right movements in Europe, you know? So uh, what, maybe what 20 years ago was a political consensus about, uh, you know, uh, between historians about, uh, the good uh, elements of liberal democracy. Uh, probably right now we are seeing that, um, well, what we can dispute this kind of official narratives of, about maybe probably the main mistake was to, to mix this kind of liberal democracy that it has many benefits, of course. But of course, this also when you see uh, the people and you only offer in terms of culture, in terms of this kind of neoliberal and consumerist culture, Maybe we, you have this kind of some ghosts, you know, that, that we Adorno and Horkheimer talk about the, the you know, the French uh, Enlightenment no? and, the, and the rise of fascism. No? You need to give people something more than mm -hmm. a supermarket. That you need to, do, to give the people something more in order to believe, you know. And it's, this is part of, of course, uh, of the Spanish transition and the political violence that we saw in the, you know, in the decades after the, the, the 1970s. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, well, and, and that was actually going to be my next question for you, because um, could you say a little about how the 
Spanish state um, responded to these attacks of ETA, particularly in this uh, transition period? Well, we need to understand that the, during the transition to democracy, there were many uncontrolled elements. You know, uh, the Spanish state was not able to maintain the order. No, uh, one of these groups was the Batallón Vasco Español, a paramilitary group, uh, an extreme right paramilitary group who kidnapped and assassinated some meta activists. But this is important to, to, to say and to state that the state sponsors of terrorism begun, began when the transition finished in 1983. Uh, oh, Gal, yeah. was, Gal was created this year, the year when the transition was finished. So yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm going to answer this. Uh, this, uh, this is a really short answer because the real dirty war of the Spanish state against ETA began uh, after the transition. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let, let me ask you about that then. <laughs> about, uh, so, yeah. So, so what what happened after the the transition, and and why at that moment in particular? Josu Amantes is is the second interview that you did, and and he experienced some of this uh, state violence firsthand. So, yeah. you know, what what was that uh, violence, and and what does it say about about this yeah. you know state response to Asia? Yeah, I think the main point of transition process is that, again, we need to look back some decades before, is the unhealed bounce of the Spanish Civil War. No, I think that uh, we need to state that during the Spanish transition, we have this kind of pact of forgetting. So during the next probably 10 or 15 years, you wouldn't see uh, sociologists or historians uh, talking about the massacres committed by the Frankist army or the tortures committed by the, or the, uh, uh, concentration camps, you know, promoted by the dictatorship, because all these things were not part of a Spanish culture that was looking to Europe, you know, and was looking to to this kind of uh, hedonist culture, you know, so that, that, that you need to look forward and try to not discuss about the, the past, no? So this mm -hmm. kind of unhealing bounds of the, of the civil war uh, explains very well the, the concept of amantes, no? And the and the way of uh, of interacting like with the GAL. You know? This GAL was a, a paramilitary group, the most well-known paramilitary group in the recent history of Spain. This The GAL basically was in charge of putting pressure uh, over the uh, eight activists that were exiled in France in the, in the uh, 1980s. No? And during the, this period, I think the most interesting part of, of of this chapter about the life story of Joshua Mantes, who was a, an ETA activist, was the concept of intersubjectivity. No? Uh, this concept does not appear in the book, but this concept is useful to understand not only the actions of GAL against ETA activists, but more important, uh, how these activists see themselves as victims, as victims, sorry, and not necessarily as perpetrators. So the fact that Amantes was so close so many times to be killed by a god, by a, by a god hitman, by a god sicario, you know, uh, depicts how et activists live life and death, you know, uh, as a daily life process. In other words, uh, Amantes uh, depicts uh, his encounters with God with full details, you know, they, he talks about the blood, about the sniper's pain, uh, but his face as a perpetrator in, is hidden from, the, from, his test, from his testimony, you know? So basically all the narrators of this uh, 
book are victims. I, all, all the narrators, all the, all the ETA activists that participated in my research were tortured in the moment of detention, you know, uh, or suffered torture by the police in the moment of detention. And at the same time, you know, we, we have this story when the uh, when Amantes was shot but, uh, by a girl hitman, no? and he was very close to death. So this kind of moment when, when Amantes is, you know, is he thinks he's going to, to die, uh, makes the reader to understand the pain of, of, of ETA activists, you know, pain they, they suffer and how they, they interact with death or, or being close to death. And at the same time, we need to understand the GAL, this kind of uh, terrorist um, and paramilitary group that we that was very had this kind of uh, strong ties with the government of uh, of Felipe González. This GAL, they give our, they gave a reason to 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 exist, basically, you know, because as you said, many of the people that were in charge of the transition, uh, many uh, of the people that were doesn't matter if they were from right-wing parties or left-wing parties, many of them, they see like why, why ETA is continue uh, with the armed struggle in a liberal democracy, what is the point, no? And the existence of GAL basically gave ETA, you know, uh, yeah, the main reason to continue living as, an, as, a, as a terrorist group, no? It was a, it's a mm -hmm. kind of contradiction if you see, uh, uh, of course, there is no reason for ETA to continue existing to, to continue existing after Franco's death, because Spain was not an, a dictatorship anymore. But these sicarios, these hitmen from the connected with strong links with the government of Felipe González, gave not only ETA, not only ETA, but part, a significant part of the vast population to see, like, okay, you see, the Spanish state is not a democratic state anymore. I mean, it's it, it continued having this kind of reminiscences of the of the of the dictatorship right right wow yeah that's a interesting um kind of unintended consequence to the to the essentially the dirty war that that uh, the spanish state fought against ETA in that mm -hmm. period all right so we'll take another um pause here and uh then we'll look at that last period um when ETA uh, declined and the, the interviews you conducted with some younger activists So um, we've been talking about this moment of kind of maximum uh, activism, the, these attacks by ETA during the transition and in that period of socialist government in the 1980s. But then in the 1990s, you see ETA lose most of its popular support. So why did this happen, essentially? Yeah, we can understand the, the, the Basque uh, 1980s as a kind of hangover process after GAL, you know? So um, the GAL actions uh, brought legitimacy to a social base, justifying new targets on civilians. So basically we need to understand uh, that uh, after the GAL was, you know, disappeared, ETA started targeting uh, journalists, politicians, and that was something new, you know? That was something new because of course uh, in the, collective imagery or the, in the cosmovision uh, for, for many Basques, the fact that ETA killed some, uh, basically some militaries, some 
people from the police forces, they could say in, in their imagery, they could say, okay, we are in a liberal democracy, but the Spanish state continue making, you know, continue torturing ETA prisoners and Basque activists. So we are in a liberal democracy, but we are trying to put pressure all over the military and security forces, no? Mm-hmm. But that changed radically in the 90s because, as I said, um, ETA started targeting people from the civil society. And that basically, it would, we could say that it, it, it was, you know, another level uh, was uh, built, you know, in terms of the conflict, you know. And so in, resp- in response of these, um, these civilian targets, during the 1990s, uh, uh, new peace organizations emerged. We could say about, uh, we could talk about Gesto por la Paz or El Carri. So basically this, uh, especially Gesto por la Paz, who was, you know, the first uh, peace organization, they were, Gesto started making like kind of meetings with hundreds of people condemning and, and claiming against uh, ETA terrorist attacks. No? So we need to understand that for the first time in the history of the Basque conflict, you know, uh, mass mobilizations in the streets took place. And these people, for the first time, were not part of the Basque political community. We need to understand that between the 70s and the 90s, all the protests in the streets uh, was, the, you know, the Basque political community was the vanguard, was the, the, the main threat of mobilization. No? So after, after these uh, peace organizations emerged, Basically, the Basque uh, radical community, uh, we talk about political parties, Erribatasuna, uh, unions like uh, uh, LAP, you know, uh, they felt threatened, you know, by the, not in this time, not by the Spanish state, but they feel the threat from the Basque population. And it was something new. Uh, and we need to understand, understand in this decline, to understand this uh, historical context of uh, decline of ETA. Uh, we should also talk about the end of the Soviet Union. So uh, in the 1990s, the main antagonist force against, let's say, Western capitalism was the Soviet Union. No? And uh, so after 1989, after 1992, there was no confrontation between uh, the capitalist uh, world and the, and the communist world. So we can talk about the golden age of neoliberalism no? and how in this um, hegemonic discourse there was no alternative uh, against uh, the capitalist system. And there was something new, there was something new. Uh, before the 1990s, uh, as, you see, as you know, many communist parties against, you know, around Europe, uh, Africa, Latin America, they, these communist parties were the kind of vanguards of, of the mass struggle. And in the 1990s, uh, the guerrilla movement, the revolutionary rhetoric was not anymore part of the masses. And of course, uh, that made it uh, to have a kind of a weak appearance in front of the of the Basque people, basically. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think what's interesting is that you're able to I, to interview several of these people who were in ETA precisely at, at this time where they were they were having a harder time making these arguments in the 1990s. And in fact, uh, one of the people you interview, Gorka Garcia Sertucha, he tried to assassinate King uh, Juan Carlos in 1995. 
you know, so what argument did he make about why he tried to do that, especially given this kind of declining situation, as he said at that time? Yeah, it's important to understand that the, the, the historical figure of King Juan Carlos I uh, had been very polemic in the, in the Basque country. But uh, it's not something personal. It's not uh, that uh, King Juan Carlos was a, you know, a, a good monarch or, or a good king or, or he did not uh, uh, do something very good for the people. What I mean is that most of the Basque people do not see themselves as part of the Spanish crown. I mean, we have in, in the Basque region, uh, we have many political identities. Uh, some people feel that they are uh, Basque, only Basque. Many people feel that they are uh, Basque and, 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 and Spanish, you know? And, but you see that if, for instance, if you go to Madrid or Extremadura or Murcia, other Spanish regions, you could see like right now, Felipe VI and before Juan Carlos I, is kind of popular, you know. They, they have a mass support. They are they are the crown is popular, not mm -hmm. in the Basque country, not in Catalonia. So only a really a small percentage of of, of Basques and, and Catalans they have they feel really an emotional connection with the monarchy. You know, only a, a very um, low percentage of the of the population. So uh, the question is, you know, talking coming back to the life mm -hmm. of 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 Sertuza, how much social legitimation, you know, among the Basques had, had Serturza when he tried to kill, you know, the Spanish king in, in 1995. I mean, and probably this is a very difficult question to answer because we don't have uh, data, you know, we don't have uh, statistics, no? But um, I think what is most, the, the most in the interesting point about, about the uh, testimony of Serturza is his commitment with the Armestrado. No? Uh, we need to understand that, I mean, the life story of Sepulcha and his attempt to kill the Spanish king. I mean, the, this life story teaches like a mistake of analyzing political violence exclusively in moral terms. I mean, of course, it would be a mistake to, to like, trying to romanticize the, the Basque nationalist struggle, you know, especially if we are talking an organization like ETA who has assassinated more than 800 people, you know? But also we need to understand what it meant, what it meant to me to be a, a Spaniard uh, in the 1990s. So what were the main elements uh, in order to construct uh, uh, the Spanish identity in the 1990s? No? Uh, so first of all, we need, to, we, need to talk, we need to talk about the Spanish miracle, you know, in the 1990s, uh, uh, the financial sectors were ruling were ruling the, the economy, no? And we could say that the 1990s was the beginning of the property speculation, no? Um, we have in this 1990s also the golden age of the Spanish middle classes, no? And they're literally, they're purchasing power. They uh, hegemonize at some point the, the aspirations of the nation, no? Uh, um, so basically, if we, need, if, we, if we thought or if we think in this culture of consumerism, we also could understand, you know, how the Basque radical community construct basically an identity against this specific Spanish identity based on consumerism and based on this kind of neoliberal values, basically. No? And of course, we cannot understand the act of, of killing uh, of Sertucha uh, against the, the Spanish king, but, but we need also to understand this kind of cultural anesthesia that leave the last generations of the last generation of Basque 
committed with the armed struggle, you know? So this last generation of, of Basques committed with, with the armed struggle, uh, so in the in this kind of, of, of in, 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 in ETA, uh, a kind of breathe, you know, in order to, to escape from this kind of neoliberal identity, you know, that was a, a that uh, was part of the of the Spanish nation at that time, you know. To finish with this with this answer, we need to understand also that just before uh, the Gal disappeared in ninety seven, sorry, nineteen eighty seven, uh, just three years before in nineteen eighty four, Santiago Broward, and Santiago Broward that was who was a, a you know probably the most charismatic figure uh, of the Basque in the history of the Basque political community was killed by a uh, Gal Hitman, you know? So this kill of reward, he was a, well, a very influenced pediatrician in Bilbao, very popular. And when they killed reward, many people, and not only from the Basque radical community, they felt that political violence was the only solution uh, in order to, to not only to achieve the right of self-determination, but to protect their cells against the Spanish security forces, you know? So mm-hmm. we have, this kind, this is part of the story of, of, of Sertuch and trying to, 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 to kill the Spanish king. No? Uh, on one side, we could, we could understand the 1980s as a period of decline of ETA, uh, but at the same time, we need to understand this kind of golden period of the neoliberal uh, European model and how you know, the last Basques committed with the armed struggle, uh, they, they see in ETA as the last chance to fight for themselves as a people, no, as their mm. homeland, probably. I also wanted to ask you uh, about the fact that most of these ATA members that use, well, most ATA members in general, in fact, either wound up being killed or spending time in prison. Um, mm-hmm. And so some of the people you talk to, you know, have this experience of spending time in prison. So what did they recall about that? And um, what did they take away from that experience? Yeah, we can mark, uh, I think, uh, a specific date that changed the daily life of, of ETA prisoners. No, we are talking about we are talking about 1987. You know, where where you know this kind of supermarket that was called Hypercor that suffered a bomb attack from ETA. 21 people were killed and 45 were injured. So it was like probably the most uncharismatic attack from ETA. You know, they they basically many people. I would say 95% of the Spaniards and many people of the Basque country condemned and they claim against ETA as a pure terrorist organization. No? And we need to follow this historical thread. No? We need to understand ETA in the 60s that raised against the Spanish fascism or raised against the dictatorship. We need to understand the Spanish uh, also 70s and, and 80s, mostly when the Gal attacks legitimized part of ETA's violence, but in the at the end of the 1980s, in uh, 1987, when ETA made this kind of uh, huge attack, you know, uh, against you know civilians in this kind of supermarket, the Spanish uh, opinion and the Spanish media turned totally against ETA, you know. And I mean, of course, we, we know the story of this attack. We need to ETA warned the Spanish authorities two hours before the explosion, but doesn't matter. It didn't matter because this, you know, the, 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 the images in, in TV of these people, you know, having this, the, this kind of, uh, you know, with all this blood around his bodies, you know, and her bodies. Mm-hmm. Basically, all these kind of images in the Spanish media kind of legitimize 
that the Spanish state from, from this moment onwards started trying to break psychologically the ETA activists in prison, basically. So uh, in this chapter, I use the, some terms like the, the device of control and Basque prisoners' emotional community to highlight the, the, the importance of understanding the, the world of, of effects no? in this kind of dialectical relation between the, the, the Spanish state, you know, and the, the insights or the life stories of ETA activists within the prison, we need to understand that just two years after the hypercourt terrorist attacks, the socialist government of Felipe González promoted kind of politics of dispersion, no? we say in Spanish la dispersión, no? where in this, in this moment ETA activists were separated from each other and all the prisoners were sent to different jails uh, uh, around Spain. Of course, that make the, the relatives of uh, activists, they, made, they, they needed to take the car and, and take maybe 12 hours, 16 hours to see the, 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 the family in prison. So, so basically the daily life of activists in prison was much harder after these attacks. No? activists they felt that a total war started against them no? in, uh, from the Spanish state. We, we are talking about they spend 23 hours a day in prison, just one hour to stay out, out of his room or her room. And it's interesting how in this total war, the experience within jail was very different uh, if, you know, uh, from male activists or female activists. No? If we talk about uh, the gender roles, you know, uh, most of the male activists uh, during the interviews, they, 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 we could see how they, f- they feel proud of what they live. No? Um, they say that they was, the, the, the jail sentences were kind of unfair. You know? Most of them, uh, uh, they were 20 or 24 years in, in jail. And some of them, they, they didn't have, they were not charged with blood crime. So they, they felt that was kind of unfair to be so many years in, a, in jail uh, uh, without, you know, without committing uh, any, any murder, you know. So, but this kind of narrative or this kind of uh, perception was not the same for female activists, you know, the, the female activist that who was uh, Anissa Esquizabel, who is part of the, of, the, of the book, you know, her tone of voice was very different from the male activists, no? Uh, actually, it was interesting how she did not even understand why I wanted to, to interview her. No? So, so for male activists, it's interesting how they, they express they, their anger you know, uh, during the, their time in prison. And on the other hand, on the other hand uh, female activists, they did not feel that they have a story to tell. So we could see like the prison is probably, prison, uh, is probably the most important myth. I'm not, when I say myth, I, I'm not saying that uh, they did not leave that. I'm saying it in the construction of a big narrative. No, so mm. prison is the most important element of the Basque radical community today, at least uh, of the this community that is very ideologically, ideologically close to ETA. No, but this kind of narrative is very different, as I said, between uh, males and females. No, uh, the women uh, on ETA they did not feel that this kind of prison sentence legitimates them, uh, you know, among their own people. They feel like, okay, I was there, I was part of ETA, I, I, I was in prison, and that's okay. I, I wouldn't say that I'm a hero for being in prison. 
But this kind of male narrative changes, you know, a lot from from a female perspective. No, the male narratives or the the male uh, activists they feel that uh, uh, being in prison makes them kind of being part of the of the eta vanguard in this twenty uh, first century. You know. Now, just to conclude here, um, of course, you you've covered a lot of ground in terms of the history of ETA and, and how that relates to the particular life stories of the people you, you interviewed. interviewed. Um, but do you, do you think you could summarize for us what you thought that you learned from conducting these interviews and um, particularly how these interviews, uh, you know, and hearing these activist stories changed the way that we can think about the history of ETA? Well, the first, the first thing that I learned is that I mean, if we want to understand an armed conflict, we need to explore within the personal life of the protagonist. You know, this is probably the first lesson that I learned. Um, and it's interesting how at the beginning of the of the research, most of the narrators were kind of reluctant uh, to, to in order to participate in, in my research. No, but once uh, once they 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 decided to, to to be part of the of the research, they were highly committed to make me understand their whole picture. Of course, the whole picture was in reality uh, one side part of the conflict, you know, but most important element in terms of, of, the, of how this book will uh, receive attention or not from the public is that most of the Spanish public does not know, they, they don't know about uh, this one side. No? So I, this is, I think in my point of view, the, the most important element in terms of, uh, of what the general audience can learn about, about the Basque conflict. The doubts, uh, fears, or fantasies of ETA activists are not so different from any other ordinary Spanish citizen. You know, this, this argument is also provocative, uh, the Spanish general audience, and also for ETA activists, no? from, from, from on one side, Basque nationalism and of course the Basque radical try to, to spread among its adepts how they are so different, so special from their neighbors, from the Spanish neighbors, no? And of course the Spaniards also they try to think that uh, uh, so different in moral terms, you know, from people uh, from Basque terrorists who has who have committed this this kind of this, this horrible crimes. But I think this book and other books that will be published in the next decades and years, I think uh, they will bring the, they will show how ETA activists and, and Spaniards, basically, they have some things in common uh, in the sense of their fears, their fantasies, their desires, no? I wouldn't say, of course, that after reading the book, most of the Spanish people uh, would say they agree with it. Of course not. But basically, they, 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 this book tried to break, you know, with this kind of dichotomy, you know, that... Uh, that you are an ordinary citizen or you are a, a terrorist. So this kind of, uh, of huge uh, gap no, between the ordinary life and, uh, you know, and being committed with the armed struggle. I think there are so many close ties between the civil society and this kind of terrorist organization that we think. So this is mm-hmm. what, uh, one of the most important things of the book. And another uh, important element is that during these years, Spaniards, we have been able to have kind of a broader understanding of the civil war. No, uh, that doesn't mean that the bounds of the civil war are completely healed, but uh, we have, let's say, a decent historiography of the of the civil war. We have many uh, historians, you know, that have published hundreds of books, you know, from all parts of the world about the civil war. And I would like to see a similar phenomenon of the Basque conflict. For for instance, we have in the last years 
they were released uh, many interesting series like uh, La Línea Invisible. Uh, this is a, a series that talks about the beginning of ETA, and I think it's a, it's a, big, uh, a very interesting series. But uh, we, need, we need that you know, historians, sociologists, anthropologists start conducting new research about uh, victims and perpetrators. I mean, ETA, uh, sorry, about ETA activists, you know? Most of them, they are perpetrators, but they are also victims, you know? I would say as a final conclusion that we should stop, at least in the, with the Basque conflict, we should stop making binary analysis, no? We should stop talking just about the perpetrators or talking just about the victims. Let's say you know, this, this sentence and try to see the, the forest for the trees, you know? We need to, to make more holistic analysis and try to connect, you know, the, the cultural atmospheres, the, the economic uh, situation, the political context, uh, try to, to, to make a, a, a bigger picture and to understand uh, the Basque conflict in a, in a broader sense, not just to focus uh, exclusively in the uh, ETA victims or, the, or the, in the ETA activists. You know? I remember uh, one of the critiques of my book, and, and I agree with them from an historian, he wrote that my book focuses exclusively uh, on the perpetrators. They, they, fo they focus exclusively on the ETA, ETA activists. And I said, of course, uh, I mean, the, the, he said that the, that the ETA victims were almost absent no, from, the, from the book. Uh, I mean, they are not absent. They are part of the book that I, I talk about the ETA victims. But of course, I, what I saw is that we have this kind of uh, hegemonic discourse from the Spanish media and from the journalists uh, that they 95% they talk about data victims and of course they deserve this kind of attention you know because a victim always deserve attention but as a you know as a, as a Spanish society as a, as a researchers we need to explore other dimensions of the conflict basically yeah well uh, thank you so much uh, Nicolas for for coming on the program and I think exactly kind of opening up those windows for us to see um, some other sides of this conflict and, and ultimately with this idea that, that we need to understand all aspects of it. So. Thank you very much, Foster. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes. <laughs>